back to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and joined with me is my beautiful wife, Erica, the Weaker Vessel. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get to know more about Awakening Reformation podcasts, go to rebelalliancemedia.com. You can check out four more podcasts that we have. One is for families and for kids. It's called Fathers of the Faith for Covenant Kids that we record with our kids. There is also the Rebel Podcast with P. Nate and Poots. That comes out on Wednesdays. They're the OG. That's right. They're the OG Rebels. And Redeeming History is a podcast that Ben Emery has done. Season one is done, but you can still get the episodes. And then also... Coming out on Fridays. (laughs) (laughs) We also have a podcast coming out on Fridays. So go check it out. Subscribe to our feed, Rebel Alliance Media and iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. And that way you get all of our new content. The website has a video series. There's blogs and articles. We just try and truly fulfill our tagline, which is equipping the church to engage culture with a biblical worldview. (laughs) So, So go check it out. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Greg Strawbridge. And we're going to be talking about why liturgy, why liturgy, why, why do churches follow a liturgy should or shouldn't they? Does the Bible talk about it? Does the Bible prescribe any certain way to do a worship service? And I listened to a really helpful lecture by him. And so I asked him to come on. So that will be our guest today is Dr. Strawbridge. Because he can talk more intelligently than we can. Right. He's he's like wicked smart. You guys will see when you Hence the PhD. Yeah, hence the doctor in front of his name. (laughs) So all right, well without further ado, we're gonna get to our discussion with Dr. Strawbridge. All right, so we have Dr. Strawbridge with us. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, great. Glad to be here. All right, so just to get our listeners familiar with you. Could you please give us just some background information, the different ministries you do? And I know your bio, it's very impressive. God has certainly used you in a myriad of ways for the church. So if you could share that with us so the listeners could get to know you. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm from uh, the northern part of Mississippi, if there is a northern part of Mississippi. (laughs) Um, And uh, my I grew up in a in a very nominal Baptist kind of home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 10 years old, I was baptized in a Baptist church. Didn't really have much spiritual fruit from that. For about 10 years, grew up in high school and all that. And then at 20 years old, I really began to seek the Lord. And and God drew me to himself. And I committed myself to follow him. Was involved in the Navigator ministry mm-hmm. in college in the college campus. And then... Uh, through through that and through some other experiences, I, I felt like I was being drawn into the ministry. Went off to seminary at Columbia Biblical Seminary in South Carolina, and then uh, went to my first church, which was a reforming a reforming Bible church. And then that context, um, I I went and did a, a doctoral degree in education and philosophy, and was looking into teaching. I was very interested in apologetics and philosophy at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, 
just over those couple of years in the mid nineties became committed uh, to very much a reformed perspective on theology. And then finally the shoe, you know, the hammer dropped and all that on (laughs) the baptism question. And I became committed to that, then began writing about that in the late nineties, early two thousands and published a book on uh, the case for covenantal infant baptism with Mm -hmm. PNR in 2003 and then in 2006, uh, Case for Covenant Communion. And uh, from in 2001, I was called to be the pastor of All Saints Presbyterian, which is in Lancaster, PA, which is where I am now. So I've been here since the end of 2001. Awesome. Doing that. I've been involved in our presbytery, Augustine Presbytery. I'm currently the presiding minister. I've been involved in classical education. Uh, Veritas Academy is a well-known mm-hmm. uh, classical Christian school in the area that I just taught Greek at this morning awesome. and uh, my kids graduated from there and all that. So three daughters that are in their twenties and uh, they, they're all faithful to the Lord and I'm very grateful for that. And my wife is first grade teacher at Veritas Academy. And so again, we've been here for many years now. That's awesome. I've been to Lancaster one time. <laughs> I was I was in a band a lot of years ago, and we did one tour throughout the U.S. And I, I remember going to Lancaster, and that was a beautiful city. Did you play at the Chameleon? Uh, you know what? That actually sounds familiar. So it probably is it like a small coffee shop ish kind of place? It's a it's it's a sm- small live music venue, but yeah. it's kind of right right downtown. Yep. a lot of bands come through. So every time you drive through the downtown, I just drove through downtown. You see, you know, trucks and you know all the yeah. paraphernalia of touring bands and buses and all that uh-huh. the, that come through. Yeah, the the vans with the big trailer attached to the back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, yeah that's it. That's pro- I think that's exactly where we played. Yeah, growing up in California, nothing has deep history really there. <laughs> so going to the East Coast and seeing the brick buildings and all that was was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. We have a house around the corner from where we live that was built in 1812 stone. Wow. That's, awesome. wow, that's incredible. The walls are about a foot thick too. That's uh, awesome. They they, lay, they literally laid stone on top, one on top of another with no mortar in between when they built the house. Oh, wow. And later they came around and put mortar. Mm-hmm. So I know what you mean. I'm from the South. And so we don't have much, you know, from, except from mid 19th century, and so coming up here, it would be like, wow, these stone houses and this kind of thing. It, yeah, it does. Because uh, the church that we worship in is called Salem Hellers. Uh, mm-hmm. We share a facility with a, an, a, a, an older, they were a German Reformed church. Okay. That church is one of the first German Reformed churches in America. It was, it was worshiping there in 1722. Wow, That's how cool. So... Yeah, and the first building was real close to that, like 1722, 23, somewhere around there. First little uh, small hut, probably wasn't yeah. a very glorious building. That's super cool. So something I I just want to make sure gets highlighted that you, you didn't mention is that you were the president of the Evangelical Theological Society for a few years. Is that correct? Yeah, the Eastern region. Uh, so there's, there's several regions of okay. ETS, and uh, I... I have been serving on the executive committee since 2009. Mm-hmm. So it rotates through like a, a secretary, then vice president, then, then president. And then we move to the structure of having a permanent secretary treasurer. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently, I've been for the last few years, the permanent 
secretary treasurer. And then I also serve with Word MP3, uh, my online audio library. We record the national ETS uh, meeting. So every year we record that meeting, and that's a lot of fun and uh, hopefully a service to the broader world to archive all this evangelical scholarship. Yeah, it's a it's a great website. It's it's fairly simple and it's easy to navigate though, and a lot of stuff is still free, and um, a lot of good resources for uh, you know it's not not too expensive either. But right, so go to wordmp3.com. And yeah, <laughs> get great online audio stuff. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight that because ETS is a very large. I mean, everyone comes. I mean, all the big scholars and from all different streams of evangelicalism pour into that every year and that's just it's pretty cool that you get to be a part of that yep all right all right so one thing i downloaded off of wordmp3.com was a lecture that you gave about why liturgy and i grew up with a very non-denominational not really any formal official liturgy type of church and since becoming Reformed, and then even more so since becoming Presbyterian, you experience a lot more liturgy than what I grew up in. So, Dr. Strawbridge, could you kind of intro us into um, this topic? In your talk at the beginning, we love we love John Piper, right? But you you talked about him and how at ETS he he actually said that the Bible did not prescribe a certain form of worship. And so could you take that statement there yeah. and start to intro us into this? Yeah, let me let me give that little anecdote because it's surprising, but I think it does speak to the issue, the broader issue. Uh, it, a few years ago at ETS, this large meeting of evangelical theological scholarship, um, the uh, a friend of, of ours, uh, uh, Michael Farley, approached the uh, leadership of ETS to start what's called a study group. And the, and the goal is you have then once you have a, a study group that's set apart, you know, for this purpose, then you have an ongoing group of of times for meetings and presentations mm-hmm. every year from then on. So, like, there's a New Testament group and there's a, you know, group on whatever, you know, Puritans and there's a group on this, that and the other, anything you can imagine. Well, so he started biblical worship group. And this was about 12, 13 years ago. Okay. And. The first year, there were a lot of people that came to it. It was very much of interest. And they had different speakers speak, and all of them addressed essentially serious worship. They weren't all coming from a more liturgical direction, but they were all saying essentially that a lot of there's something wrong with evangelicalism because, and, and this was the term that was being used at the time, you know, away with Disney World worship. That's mm-hmm. the way they discussed it. Mm-hmm. And that's what they, they, they called it. <laughs> and um, the next year, uh, it was in Rhode Island. The, the meeting was in Rhode Island. And and I'd say there were about 500 people at the first year. The second year, they had John Piper speak. So, of course, there's going to be lots. It's probably 1,000 people in the room, something like that. A lot of people um, to hear his presentation. And he specifically had a, a very short presentation. He said, I want to do this, and then I want to get feedback from people, and I really want to listen to others. A very good word. And it was a tremendous presentation. It was on the glory of God and worship. Mm-hmm. And and after the presentation, which he does a great job of, they're always, always really yeah. powerful and passionate, really great. And so afterwards, 
I asked one of the questions. I, people have different questions, but I stood up and said, you know, so thank you so much for the presentation. Now, you know, the glory of God, how basically I was asking, how do you incarnate the glory of God? How do you practically do what you just said in, in our in worship, in, in, you know, congregational worship? Do you, you know, is the glory of God sort of matched by loud music or do you need drums or do you, you know, what exactly equates to the glory of God yeah. in worship? How do you do it? How do you do glory in worship? And I was sincerely kind of asking, like, does that mean we really need to have loud music? I mean, I was kind of thinking along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and he stood and he basically just he really didn't have an answer. And so then I, I said something like, do you think that the Old Testament and I'm thinking here specifically of, of the covenant renewal pattern, which I can tell you more about in a moment. Yeah. So do you think the Old Testament gives us any guidance about what to do in worship. And he, he said, no. Mm. And I said, do you think the new Testament gives us any guidance about what to do in worship? And he said, no. And that was really weird because you're basically saying nothing in the Bible tells us what to do in worship. But as he, he immediately kind of guarded his answer by saying, if the Bible told us what to do in worship, then it wouldn't be transcultural. So, you know, I think the idea would be if the Bible told us we should do things this way, quote, quote like a traditional Presbyterian service, uh-huh. then that traditional Presbyterian service couldn't be, you know, transmuted to all these other cultures where maybe that style and the staidness and the formality and all that mm-hmm. stuff would be completely foreign. And therefore we'd lose our missionary opportunity to be cross-cultural. That, that's what he was saying. Trying to, I'm trying to interpret his, his words in the very best light. I think he's trying to say, we, we would lose the ability for, you know, to traverse culture and to cross cultures if we had a specific and distinctive, set of actions and style of worship. But I think what <laughs> what you end up with if you say that is the Bible doesn't tell us what to do in worship, which I don't think we want to say that. I don't mm-hmm. think we want to say yeah. a book that's completely consumed with God telling us not to commit idolatry. That's the mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the in essence the biblical message is there's one true God and you should worship him. To say that whole book, <laughs> the long book never tells us what to do to worship God is kind of, that's kind of strange. You know, that, that, that's kind of a, a weird conclusion. Yeah. Uh, if the Bible, if the biblical content is, you know, doesn't address worship, what, you know, almost what does it address, you know? So I, again, I, I want to interpret John Piper's words in the best way. I think he's trying to, trying to keep us from imposing you know, whatever North American culture on other cultures. Right. But I, I think that the standard always has to be the Bible. And I would make a distinction between the content of our worship and the, the order and sequence of what we do in worship versus the style. Yeah. So clearly we're going to worship across the world in different languages mm-hmm. and with different stylistic emphases. We're, you know, there could be a lot of variations, but does the Bible prescribe content and a, and a sequence of, to that content? And I want to argue that, yes, it does. Yeah. And, and, it, and, if, and if not, then then what would be wrong with Disney World worship? 
Exactly. Yes, exactly. Why, you know, if you can't say the Bible tells us this and not this, then no one is ever can ever be at fault yeah. at worship. But think about that statement. No one could ever be at fault for worship. Yeah. <laughs> does, does that sound like the Bible to you? No, it well, says no. do this way. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, the whole, you know, whole saga of Kings and Chronicles is all about the failure of Israel to worship properly and, and so forth. Like there's a lot of concern uh, about about true worship. The first commandment of obviously is uh, at stake here. And first and second commandment for sure are at stake in 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 worship. And so I think that to conclude that the Bible doesn't give us relevant information. I think, I think a lot of times too, is like, well, but that's the old Testament. Oh, right. Um, right. Yeah. And then you got to kind of have that problem. So, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, granted it, 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 the old Testament has a lot of regulation for worship, but, and it's, we understand the relationship between the old Testament and new Testament to be that there is, there are things in the old Testament that are prescribed for Israel. that are unique to Israel. Um, and there is a, you know, transformation that happens when Christ comes as the fulfillment of the law of the prophets, uh, Matthew five eighteen and following. Uh, so there's, you know, we have to factor that in. We all, you know, are Christians here. We're all talking mm-hmm. about fulfillment. But what is taught ultimately? And I think it would be unlikely to think that you have the whole Old Testament and then you get to Jesus and now suddenly everything's up for grabs. Mm-hmm. It's probably not that. That's probably not that. That's pro- probably not that. <laughs> That's probably not the conclusion we should come to. Yeah, more, more and more, especially with covenant theology and linking, you know, seeing the continuity from Genesis to Revelation, you, you really can't ditch, you can't unhitch, as a popular uh, man would say. Um, so a lot of people talk about the regulative principle of worship. Um, yes. And then, but then there's this thing with covenant renewal worship. Um, yes. Could you explain maybe the difference between those two, even because um, I would still say that we're regular that we hold to the regulated principle, but I think there's some that I know who would hold to that, but not hold to covenant renewal worship. So could you help yeah. uh, help explain those and see the connections or differences, and and then where in the Bible do we see this covenant renewal pattern? Yes. So regulative principle worship arises especially out of the Presbyterian stream of reformed christianity and specifically out of the puritan worship that were puritan separatists that were responding to anglican christianity mm-hmm. in the in the isles british isles so they the rated of principle became the you know the billy club to hit anglicans over the head with, for example <laughs> to say you know the bible doesn't prescribe that we do this it doesn't prescribe that we have vestments it doesn't prescribe that we have a church calendar it Mm -hmm. doesn't prescribe that we uh, acknowledge christmas it doesn't prescribe that we acknowledge easter etc and what they ended up with is saying in terms of calendar the only holy day is the lord's day sunday the christian sabbath and that these elements of worship are the only elements prescribed Mm -hmm. and they're kind of what you might expect the reading of scripture, the preaching of scripture, the sacraments, the uh, praise. And in the strictest reading, the praise is the singing of the Psalms alone, not the singing of hymns of human composition. Mm 
um, and, and prayer. So you end up with that. Now, what's missing from that list of elements, by the way, in terms of Westminster Confession, Christianity, and strictest reading of that, giving, offer, the offering is missing from mm. that. There is no offertory. Why? Hmm. Because in the context of 1640s Christianity, the state yeah. supported the church. So you didn't, it wasn't, the, the church wasn't supported by voluntary offerings. It was a state-funded right, yeah. organization, right? And that, that was true, by the way, all the way into America. Um, the Anglican church was state-funded in Virginia, for example. Um, so the whole separation of church and state thing is completely bogus. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it doesn't, well, it doesn't mean that the, there's a separation between the states and the church. It means there's a separation of the federal government. States could and, and indeed had official churches. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. Virginia had an official church that was state funded called the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church. And there were other examples of that up into the 1800s. And then, you know, they kind of applied the principle and painted it into the corners quite a bit. But again, state here is, you know, funded. Well, what you find, my, my point here is that giving uh, the offertory, if you will, is not prescribed as an element of worship, even though most churches do that. Um, a benediction is not prescribed as an element of worship, but go find a a really conservative Presbyterian church that doesn't do a benediction at the end. Well, you don't. One of the guys that I knew years ago, when I pointed this out to him, when I started getting into it in the 90s, I was like really looking into Puritan regular principle worship. And I, I found it appealing in the sense of we need to do things only warranted by the Bible. But then I immediately, as I studied that, I, it was like, the problem is it becomes very, very problematic. Like what what is uh what is warrant? How do you determine what warrant is? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, is it is it command? Because not everything is commanded. We have no command to do baptism in worship. We have no command to mm-hmm. to yeah. um, do an offering in worship. We have no command to do a benediction in worship. And I I remember pointing out one to one guy who was of that kind of regular principle reading, like benedict. You do benediction, don't you? Yes. And he said that's just the reading of scripture. <laughs> that's the way he defended it. He said, yeah. when I do my benediction, even though I know the verse, I hold my Bible up and I read this, read the verse from the Bible. Well, now that's okay. Now that is what I call an ad hoc argument, right? <laughs> you're, you're in a corner yeah. and, uh, you know, show me the, the regulative warrant for benediction. And the answer is, and it, by the way, it can be from the old Testament. We have that from the old Testament in number six. Yep. Because in the Old Testament, they also have regular warrant for musical instruments. But you yeah. can't do that because there's no regular you know, warrant for uh-huh. that in the New Testament, okay, et cetera. Well, uh-huh. he would say, well, I'm just reading the Bible. But that's not, the, that's not what a benediction is. The, mm-hmm. the benediction is not a reading of Scripture. It is what? Benedictus. It's a blessing. It's right. from God. God is blessing his people. So if you don't have warrant for a blessing from, from God, then... You shouldn't do it. You have warrant to read scripture, but that is clearly not the same uh, action of worship, benediction, and just reading scripture to two things that are overlapping, but they're not the same thing. And, uh, you know, again, his way of getting out of that was say, well, I'm just reading the Bible. So, okay, well, there you go. But you don't, you don't have um, 
baptism. There's no baptism in a worship service in the New Testament. There's no command to do baptism in the worship service in the New, in the New Testament. So I was, I'm a musician, so I grew up playing guitar. And when I, my undergraduate degree is in, in guitar oh, cool. and music and when I studied classical guitar and all that. Um, and so I was always interested in musical instruments, that issue. And I really I enjoy musical instruments. I play quite a few and all that, mess around on lots of them. <laughs> and so I was always wondering, like, what's the warrant for musical instruments? And yeah. the strict Puritan regular principle says no musical instruments. In right. fact, all those, you know, a lot of guys know R.L. Dabney. I mean, Dabney just railed against church churches having organs. He was very, oh, wow. uh, he really hated it. If you look, by the way, if you want to read on some of this stuff, um, on my, on Word, Word and P3 site under Reformation Resources tab, okay. there's some books that I've contributed to. One of them is on music. It was good music. And I did a whole chapter on musical instruments for Square Halo publishers. And I, I took on the task of, addressing the the issue of does the bible give us warrant for musical instruments and try to work work through some of that and make an argument a new covenant argument about yeah, that cool so you, you can read that but there's just an example of of the regular principle now if the principle is just warrant then you gotta have to define warrant and does the warrants stretch from old testament to new testament and now you got a hermeneutical problem because what if I say, well, I've got warrant for sacrificing birds. Yeah. If you if you read Leviticus about chapter three or so, it's it explains that that for a sin offering you can bring a bird. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And uh, well, do I warrant for going? You know, bringing birds to worship in the new covenant and all that? No, because of this principle of fulfillment and how do we how do we handle that but if you just take something from the old testament and you say this is uh you know we bring this over to new testament worship and you don't have new testament reason for it there's where you have the problem because you have ceremonial what what the what the confession calls ceremonial yeah. aspects of old testament worship that don't apply to the new testament so now you have to figure out what exactly how what is the proper mode of interpretation and this thing kind of comes down to issues like uh, how you deal with musical instruments and how you deal with choirs and how you deal with these things that are highlighted in the old testament even commanded yeah mm-hmm. but that are not discussed in the new testament in the same in the same way right so i want to say it's possible to believe in the regular principle as well as covenant renewal worship, but you have to, you know, give me the interpretation opportunity here for mm-hmm. regular principle. I would say the broadest way to talk about it is do we have, we need biblical warrant for what we do in worship, but what is biblical warrant? And that's where the, the warrant has to be a lot more, uh, robust than simply a New Testament command. Mm-hmm. And, and here, I would even maintain it this way. If someone says warrant equals a New Testament command, then you have a problem because no one worships in a regulative way at that point. Even the strictest mm-hmm. Puritan guy still does baptism in worship, and there is no command yeah. nor example of a baptism in worship. So at least at that point, you are you know, and they, they they heighten all the sense of it's like this is idolatry. Like you know, they would they would talk about somebody playing a musical instrument in worship, like 
uh, putting your hand on the Ark of the Covenant yeah. and dying and all this. Like, you're gonna, yeah. you're going to be struck, stricken down and killed by God in lightning for pulling out a flute in worship. You know, it's like, well, do you think you know, by the same principle, you, you should be stricken down and killed by, you know, the lightning for doing a baptism in worship? Or, and doing an offering in worship, right. right? Yeah, right. But nobody believes that, you know. So, so again, the strictest reading—that's a reductio ad absurdum argument, right? I'm, I'm reducing yeah. the strictest reading to absurdity. It it doesn't give us mm -hmm. enough coherence, and it's evident, of course, that when you read the New Testament, nobody is struggling. Nobody uh, is is going through like, "Hey, uh, Paul, let's have a worship service." By the way. Let's look at the 10 things that are commanded for worship and let's make sure that no one uh, does anything else. Like nobody is thinking of it that way. No, they inherit the tradition of synagogue worship. And now it's being renewed and transformed by what, uh, you know, what Christ accomplished. And now you've got the new teaching and obviously you have Jesus command to do the Lord's Supper. And so you, you have essentially a, a straightforward transformation of synagogue worship and let me say about that so a lot of people jump on well synagogues did you know do this and this and this and they don't do this and this and this more and more what's been determined in uh 20th century scholarship and 21st century scholarship is that the synagogues viewed themselves as doing the same activity of worship that happened at the temple oh, wow. so so in the 19th century, there was a, a strong argument from the Puritan guys that you only worship, you know, the synagogue worship was very different than temple worship. And there's a strict kind of separation. That is not what uh, the most recent scholarship says. There, there's a very strong sense that uh, like when Hebrew says the sacrifice of praise, that they understood that in the synagogue when they are praising God and saying the prayers, those are acts of sacrifice. And there's a transition uh, from the actual animal sacrifices yeah. to the verbal sacrifices. And you get a little hint of that in, uh, in Hebrews 13. But anyway, but, but back to the main point is you, you have um, a transition clearly in the new Testament period. Right. So that people worship, they're doing the Lord's supper they understood that this is they're giving the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and they don't have a problem with with they don't they're not thinking of it the way puritans thought of it mm -hmm. of like we have these five things that we can do that are warranted and no one may do anything and more yeah. they're clearly just taking up from the traditions of their synagogue worship with the transformation that comes through yeah. Christ and through the Lord's Supper and and such as that. That's my my point on regular principle worship. Let me say one more thing about this because this was a a real tr yeah. a real transformative idea for me when I studied things like the church calendar many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I had in my mind from reading you know Puritans and the arguments on worship that the Jews had the strict observance of the Mosaic calendar. And so kind of in my mind, it was like the believing faithful Jews had the Mosaic calendar. And then the liberal Jews added to that calendar, other things. And kind of like, 
the Puritans had, you know, the Lord, the only holy day is the Lord's day. Mm-hmm. And then all the, you know, essentially liberal <laughs> Christians added the church calendar and the church of Rome and all this kind of stuff. Well, that is really a very, very false picture of history. The Jews added to the Mosaic calendar all of these other special days. We know of, we know of some of them. For example, we know that they added the Feast of Dedication, right? That's you know uh, what happened when the cleansing of the temple happened in the 160s under Judas Maccabeus. Mm-hmm. This is about 200, you know, 160 years before Christ was born. But we also know that the Feast of Purim was added after yeah. after Esther. So Jesus, we know that in John, Jesus attended the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. If yeah, you will, Hanukkah. Yeah. Right. So so. But not only that, let me, if you just, just Google uh, Jewish, Jewish uh, you know, holidays or holy days, they added a ton of things. <laughs> so there was just no, in other words, there was no sense that the Jews had, the faithful Jews, as well as, you know, any other sect up until the first century and, and beyond. There's just no sense in which you could not add to the Mosaic calendar. You mm-hmm. couldn't add to, quote, the revealed calendar. Hmm. That's just not in their psyche at all. They had all kinds of celebratory events. Yeah. And so w- one of the things that I like to say about the church calendar is, okay, if it was permissible for Jesus to go to a, you know, basically a celebration of the cleansing yeah. of the temple, you know, from Judas Maccabeus, Maccabeus which, you know, is, is, I think, a legendary and important you know, aspect of Jewish history, mm-hmm. but it's certainly beyond the revelatory period. And we don't expect that everything that the Maccabees did was great. That, that whole era formed the foundation for the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees yeah. and all that, you know, so like, okay, this is not, I mean, again, it'd be like national patriotism, but we don't go, Oh, you know, George Washington is sinless guy, you know, because he did this, that, and the other. No, no, like, okay, well, we're grateful for God's providence and the way he used him. I think that's probably the way faithful Jews thought of it. It's like they yeah. were grateful to be be delivered at that time, and it was a great deliverance of God. But they didn't, I don't think they worshipped uh, the, these people as sinless people. Obviously, they didn't worship David that way, so they wouldn't worship Maccabees that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they added this, but Jesus... Per, you know, participates in this festival, of course. And so he, he, he basically honors, you know, we say in the marriage situation, we say Jesus honored marriage by attending the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus honored the, you know, feast of dedication by attending Hanukkah, you know, yeah. um, celebrating Hanukkah. And, and it's just the whole idea that they would never add to this mosaic calendar, the revealed calendar, anything else is just completely wrong it's just that's not at all the way faithful jews thought of it and therefore for for people to come along later after christ has come to fulfill to say well we can never add to the you know the the mosaic or revealed calendar and by the way there's no easter or there's no christmas in Mm -hmm. the in the new testament so we can't celebrate but listen if the jews added a, a time of of you know temple dedication when basically they had a temporal victory over, you know, over, uh, I guess, the Syrians at that point, mm-hmm. Antiochus Epiphanes, do you think they might have added something to commemorate the Messiah? 
Right. Do you think they might have restructured their yeah. calendar thinking kind of regarding the fulfillment of Jesus? I mean, if they were, you know, so if they added the Feast of Purim and its dedication and many other things because of those lesser things, do you think they might have had any change to their revealed calendar after the coming of the Messiah? And I think the answer is obviously so. And that's exactly what the church did over the first few centuries. You ended up with a renewed calendar of Israel. So now you don't think about Passover. You think about the Good Friday and what's taking place to lead to Easter. And you think about Pentecost pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And you you know, remember the birth of Christ. You remember the major events in Christ's life in Epiphany and so forth. So you remember Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, which is Lent. Like, uh, granted, you could come up with maybe a better calendar than that, but that's the one the church historically came up with. But yeah. it's just a renewed old creation calendar. It's a renewed calendar of, you know, of, of the history of Israel uh, in light of the, the coming of Christ. So, yeah, that's, um, that's really helpful for, for some of those hearing the hard, hard lined RPW guys, because I've seen it before on social media, them you know, lamenting the use of a piano and lamenting Easter and all that. And, and so uh, thank you for, for explaining that. It's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the, for the structure and the pattern of the covenant renewal worship. um, So where do we see that? I love hearing this pattern you see in in Leviticus and that era. And then, and then how we see that in a liturgy today. Yeah. So once it goes again, it goes back to what is the warrant for what we do in worship. Yeah. And 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 what we want to do is say, is there warrant for uh, actions of worship? And I think there's where we have to say, we got all this information about the sacrificial system mm-hmm. from the Old Testament. What what's the import of that? And 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 general Christianity says, well, Christ died for our sins. I mean, that is certainly true and certainly the most important aspect of that. But is there anything more? What was going on? And I think this is where, frankly, just the this blatant ignorance that Christians have of the sacrificial rites means that we're going to miss anything there that's that's useful. But if we study it through... You know, and I would encourage you, like, to get into, like, let's just read through what these rites do. Mm-hmm. I did a paper. I have a paper on that same Reformation Resources page, and it's called the something about the language of union, language about union with Christ and in Paul, relating to the sacrificial system. And I just walk through one of the rites, which is the rite of the burnt offering, or the ascension offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first chapter of Leviticus, and it it goes through. And, and if you look at it, I mean, here's what you do: you just kind of walk through the the pattern. A, a person brings an animal. He lays his head on the head of the animal. The worshiper then cuts the throat of the animal. The priest catches the blood uh, and sprinkles the blood on the altar. Sprinkles the blood on the altar. Okay, there's other aspects of the blood rite. Mm-hmm. Um, now what an altar is, is a little mini mountain. And so if you sprinkle it on the side of the altar, what do you do? Well, you take your finger, you dip the blood in, and then you do this. What, what is the visual effect of that? It's, you have blood going from the top of the altar 
down to the bottom on the side. What is that? It's a trail of blood. It's a, it's a pathway of blood to the top, from the top of the mountain to the bottom. What does that symbolize? Well, it symbolizes God is at the top, you're at the bottom. God uh-huh. has come down and provided a way back to himself, namely through blood. Go see Genesis chapter 3, right? Yeah. Um, then, as this is the burn off, then the animal, which all of it's going to be consumed and, and, and given away, uh, used, that's why it's called the whole burnt offering, um, the animal has to be skinned. Now, why in the world do you skin an animal that you're about to, you know, uh, you know, you're about to put that thing, a whole thing on the fire? Why do you do that? Uh, and then, well, you need new skin. There's a symbolic dimension. Adam and Eve were given new skins. Uh, they were they were covered with skins, literally. They had new clothes. We are to be clothed with Christ. Uh, then, again, here's an animal. All of it's going to be offered. Mm-hmm. So why would you why would you wash the entrails and the feet? Why would you do that? Uh, there's nothing you know necessary about this if you're going to offer the whole animal. It's symbolic. It's a symbolic aspect. You wash the entrails because it's out of the it's out of the inside that sin from which sin arises. We're mm-hmm. we're the the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? It's it's out of the internal man. Romans three that yeah. sin arises. So it's a symbolic washing. Why does the feet need to be washed? Why does the legs need to be washed? Because the legs, the feet touch the cursed ground. The ground is cursed. The feet touch the ground. The feet need to be washed. So a symbolic baptism of the animal. Then it all ascends up and God is pleased with it. He is pleased with a fragrant aroma. Why? Because the animal is transformed into an acceptable sacrifice. So you have to go through the knife and the fire to get back to God, back to the Garden of Eden. You have to go through the flaming sword. Mm. And that's what that's what the burnt offering does. You lay your hand on the head of the animal so the animal is now you. And it symbolically goes up, it's transformed into smoke and becomes pleasing to God. And God illustrates the washing and the pathway of blood to himself. That's the burnt offering. Now, I dare say that people, almost nobody has heard that kind of explanation of the burnt offering yeah. before. But it is plainly there. Like, if you just read it, it, there's so many allusions to what Paul Paul himself says. For example, yeah. clearly the burnt offering is behind Romans 12.1. All this description of what Christ did to justify us is work of sanctification and so forth. Then it, it culminates in chapter 12, verse 1, right? Mm-hmm. I urge you, therefore, brethren, para, it's like uh, a parakaleo. I urge you, therefore, brethren, I comfort you, therefore, brethren, I give you strength, brethren, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Acceptable. That's the idea that once it gets up there, it's a pleasing aroma to God. Yeah. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, your um your logic house, logic house is a word. Your reasonable service of worship, your latreia. There's a word for worship service. This is your where you present your body a living sacrifice. That's what we do in worship. All right. So all of this sacrificial language out of the Old Testament does it have any import in the New Testament? And the answer is yes. And this is how it works. You get all these different sacrifices explained in Leviticus. They're sort of like the manual. It's kind of like the instruction manual that says, 
Um, now, when you when you change the when you change the oil, you need to take the oil pan off and do this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give us in the first few chapters. It doesn't give us a sequence. It just gives us now the burn offering. When someone comes to a burn offering, and then it goes into it, and it kind of works like this. It will say, now when someone comes as a burn offering, if he is a priest, um, a, 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 an anointed priest, then he should bring a a, a son of the herd. And, you know, so basically a bull and it, but, you know, then it says, and if, uh, this person is not a priest, then he can bring a male goat and then, or it can, if he brings, you know, whatever, two, two birds. So you have this, this, this kind of interesting ranking of things. And so if you're, if you're a, a prince, you have to bring a bull. If you're a commoner, you can bring a goat. You know, if or a bird, it birds, um, it, it kind of goes through. Like if you're the high priest, ultimately the high priest has to bring this kind of sacrifice. If you're, uh, if you're the, if the whole congregation sins, then it requires this kind of sacrifice. You have this status ranking, but when we get through all of the instruction manual and we we find out, okay, there's a, there's an ascension offering, a burnt offering is what it's called, mm-hmm. Greek Greek term. Greek, uh, the LXX term is holocaust offering, holocaust, a whole burn offering. There is a sin offering. There is a peace offering. And then there's a, a minka, a tribute offering, a gift offering of grain. So we find out there's these basic uh, four types of our, four types of sacrifices. And then you have a couple of subsets, like a trespass offering, uh there's a couple of varieties there, but then there's a Thanksgiving offering, a votive offering. Those are varieties of the peace offering. But the four basic kinds given right in the first few mm-hmm. chapters of Leviticus are ascension offering, burnt offering, that is, uh, peace offering, sin offering. Okay. Now, if you read, keep reading, when you see the set up, when, when Aaron and sons are set apart, the consecration of these officers, of these uh, officers of the tabernacle at this point, or the priest, there's a sequence that that they're given in. So what 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 you have is a bunch of references to sacrifices, a bunch of sub references to the you know tabernacle architecture and all this stuff. But then when you there's only a few cases in which you see the sequence of the sacrifices, and in Leviticus. Uh, nine, I'm thinking, is one of them. There's several cases mm-hmm. of this, but it goes through and it shows you how did they do it and what they did every time. Every time the sequence is there, it goes the same way. And it is, you do you you offer a sin offering first, then you do the ascension offering, the burnt offering, then you do, uh, in the context of the ascension offering, you do the minka offering, the the gift offering or tribute offering. And then you do the peace offering. And what you end up with then is a sin offering, which is to address uh, trespasses and sin. Mm -hmm. An ascension offering where the worshiper basically is transformed and offers uh, himself or themselves um, as acceptable before the Lord, a whole, you know, the whole of themselves. And then you have the the, the tribute offering is a grain offering. And then you have the peace offering, which is where the worshiper then participates in a meal with God. So that 
sequence, and if you listen to the sermon you were referencing earlier, I, I provide a whole lot of citations from mm-hmm. commentaries, but most commentators say this sequence is really significant. It is broad evangelical commentaries like Walter Kaiser and others will say, this is a really important sequence. So if you just think through the sequence, you deal with your sin first when you come to God. Yep. Then you offer yourself wholly to God. Then you have uh, you, you give of the fruit of your labors. That's where, by the way, you can give the work of your hands, which is the you know grain offering. Yeah. Um, then you have a meal with God, and you have peace, shalom. It's a shemayim, shemayim uh, offering. Well, that sequence is what liturgical worship is. You have a confession of sin. You, know, you appear before God. You have a confession of sin. Then you have uh, the rites of cleansing, which are the water of the word. You read the scripture. You hear mm-hmm. it taught and preached. Uh, you you appeal, you know, present yourself before God. Perhaps at that point you confess the faith. You, you know, you ba- basically make vows. You basically are uh, offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Then you have communion. That's, that is the path, you know, and right after that, you have the offertory, and mm-hmm. then you have communion. And that is the pattern of, of liturgic worship. And it's what those who are in this vein call covenant renewal patterns. It's, again, call to worship, where you come, appear before God, confession of sin, your consecration, which is all of the readings and prayers and presenting yourself to God, then your uh, offertory, and then the peace offering the Lord's Supper, communion. That's great. Um, that's really super helpful. I'm learning so much. <laughs> um, yeah, my mind's just kind of blown. Yeah, this is really this is really helpful. <laughs> um, so uh, I know one thing I thought of when I first started hurting this terminology, so others uh, maybe also, is it's called covenant renewal worship. And I know I was like, well, what do you mean renewal? My covenant's good. My Jesus has got my covenant sure and you know, he's the, he's a guarantee. Like, what do you mean renewal? So, um, so I know some may get hung up on that, that word renewal there. So what do you mean by renewal? Well, there, the, most scholars recognize that there are a lot of events throughout the Bible where there's a renewal of covenant, certainly Deuteronomy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have a second giving of the law. There's a renewal of covenant, but let me speak to the larger thing. Just think about Passover. Passover is an example. When, when the first Passover happens, it was historical. This is Exodus 12. You know, they literally leave Egypt that mm-hmm. night. Yeah. And they do things a little different. Like they have houses, they put blood on the doorposts, they you know, do these things. Well, later in the hist- history of Israel, they don't sacrifice a lamb at, at each other's house. They sacrifice a lamb only at the central sanctuary. That's what Deuteronomy prescribes. So basically, in Jerusalem in the first century, in the, you know we read about this in the New Testament, whenever they were going to sacrifice the lamb for Passover, they did it at the temple. It was part of the rites of the temple. It wasn't something you just did anywhere. You didn't sacrifice animals in another yes. place, right? That, that was what was prescribed. Well, when Deuteronomy explains the Passover, and when you see it, and even now you can— have this rehearsed by, you know, Jews for Jesus or something. But <laughs> there's there's an emphasis in the biblical narrative where you say, this is not the covenant 
we made with your father, that God made with your fathers. Mm-hmm. This is not the covenant <laughs> made with your fathers. This is a covenant made with you. Mm. Now, now, yeah. of course, that's that's like Semitic Hebraic overstatement, right? Hyperbole, because God did make a covenant. You know? Right. God did make a covenant with the first people that were leaving out of the out of Egypt. That's true, but it's making an emphatic point. That is, do not think of this event as something that God just did in the past. This is God now renewing covenant with you, mm-hmm. right? And, and the language is very much kind of strident. Like this is not, you know, this is not a covenant God made with your fathers. You know, this is not the covenant God made with your fathers. Well, it is the covenant God made with your fathers. Right. But what he's saying is the emphasis is it's a co- you are you are being brought into the reality mm-hmm. of this now. And that's what covenant renewal, that's the concept of covenant renewal. You now, this is what God is doing now. You know, it's God, it's, it's a way like God didn't redeem your forefathers from Egypt. He redeemed you. Right. Well, that's not strictly speaking true. We're not used to saying things that way because it's the way language works for us. (laughs) But that's the way the Bible talks. It, yeah, it talks this good. contrast of this is not about them. This is about you. And, and it's just to, as to say the emphasis is on you being in this reality of the covenant. Now, it's just obviously we step back from that, explain it, and say, well, it's obviously the case that they were covenantally united, too. But the emphasis is now it's you. And yeah. and so there's a strong sense in which we we are to renew ourselves before God. And I think probably the root, if I want, if I could address one thing with evangelicals with regard to worship, I would, I would address this one thing. I would say, we do not believe evangelicals do not see that we appear before God in some kind of real spiritual sense in worship. And that's the one thing I would like to address with people. I would say Hebrews 12 says, you have not come to Mount, to the Mount quaking to Mount Sinai actually, but you have come to Mount the heavenly city to myriads of angels and, and to God, the judge of all, right? That, that, that image is you have come to something much more awesome than the most awesome thing that the Bible records yeah. in terms of God's presentation at Sinai and a quaking, and they were all afraid. So you come to something much more awesome, and that is to the spiritual reality of that. And and do you do this when you appear before God in worship? Well, if you believe that, see, a lot of people don't believe it. No, if you yeah. do believe that, then that means that what you do is going to be serious and affect your life and you're going to take it with you know real sincerity a lot of people simply believe that it's no it's no different than getting together uh in a sports arena to watch a game right or going to a concert and you're watching performers or going to a lecture if that's what it is if that's what you're doing in worship 
then why not make it entertaining? Why not do right. all various you know things, right? But what if it is not that? What if it is, it's like you're appearing at the foot of the mountain, right? Yeah, you're probably and there's gonna... a spiritual There's a spiritual reality beyond this, that's that's real, and yeah. you're you know you have a great cloud of witnesses. And uh, as we say in the Lord's Supper, traditional language from the English Reformation is, "Lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord." And then it goes and says. With angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. Yeah. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we, so we are with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee, saying, holy, holy, holy. Right? That invokes, uh, traditional worship invokes the fact that we are in a spiritual reality when we appear before God. Yeah, well, and that spiritual reality is we are saying with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we are giving you praise. Yeah, probably so, would uh, cause the church to think a little deeper about how they do worship, I imagine. Because the Disneyland worship, as we were referring to, and I know what I grew up in, I mean, there are a lot of aspects of it that are just kind of winged. They just wing it, which is... The, you know, or they intentionally try and make it a performance and an emotional experience. Not... That's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's seen it firsthand, and just yeah, it it the the focus is um, completely derailed in that way. And, and here's the other thing about the covenant renewal pattern: Why did God prescribe this sequence? Why did He say, "Come and offer sin offering," then? Ascend, you know, do an ascension offering, then do uh, a tribute offering, then do a peace offering. Why did he do that? Why did why is that the the way it's done? It it's because think of I mean, we don't even really need the the Old Testament uh, pattern telling us this. It makes sense just at a psychological level. If you yeah. appear before God, and this is true every time you have somebody appear before God in the Bible, Isaiah, right? What's the first thing that happens when he sees the Lord? His mouth is cleansed. Uh, he, he's like, I'm a sinner, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all this. And he needs to be cleansed, which is consecrated. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Well, he is sent forth. Now, you don't have a communion in that spot, but you always have the same kind of pattern. The person recognizes their sinfulness, and then they're kind of given the task to go forth. Yeah. But, but think of the whole sequence. You come into God's presence. You deal with your sin through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. You renew the fact that you are forgiven. Then you are set apart to do his will and hopefully empowered to do his will. Then God receives you in fellowship at his table so that you commune with Christ. And then you're sent forth to do uh, what God wants you to do. So it's it's five C's. It's a real way, simple way to remember it. Call to worship, um, confession of sin, consecration, communion, and then commission to go forth. Awesome. And to serve. That's really helpful. So another thing that I would uh, like to hear your response to is the person that you're explaining this to, trying to convince them that this is biblical and and they're worried that this is just all too very Catholic. All this, you know, stand up, sit down, repeat after me, and the 
and just kind of the rigid the lifting of the hands and the yeah and because i know my much older self would have looked at a lot of this and just thought oh that's very stuffy old tradition there's no life in it and it just looks super catholic no thanks what what's your response to to that person that is there, there's two aspects of that one is the content and the other is the style in terms of the content the trinity is very catholic in terms of the content, <laughs> the deity of Christ is super duper Roman Catholic, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the Bible is super crazy Catholic. All right. So that we have to go, hold on. There's a big fallacy here, you know, because uh, other people, Christian, historic Christians have believed something or practiced something that mm-hmm. would make it wrong in and of itself. Mm-hmm. You have to address that on independent grounds. Okay. So, as a matter of my reading of history is you don't really have a Roman Catholic church until somewhere around 600 AD. Yeah. And then it's distinctly kind of taking on these, the Roman Bishop superiority and so forth and so on. And yes, the church develops now. So I don't want to say the Trinity is a distinctively Roman Catholic doctrine. It is not a distinctively Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, I don't want to say, uh, worship that follows the historic liturgy is distinctly Roman Catholic. It's not. It's just the way the early church did it, and then it developed through history. And and in many ways, that's where everybody was. At, you know, If you just drop into 1520, everybody's worshiping basically the same way, with <laughs> pretty much the same thing. And now you have diversity that starts to happen, and, right. and, and not all that diversity is good. Sometimes, you know, the, I think the the reformers, let me, I'm a reformed guy, but the reformers really messed up on some things. And one of the things they messed up on is they did not require weekly communion. They wanted to. A lot of them wanted it. Calvin wanted it, but yeah, he couldn't yeah, he get fought it, for it because the city council were in control and they didn't want it. And they didn't want it, not because it was Roman Catholic, because they were afraid of communion. Because it was it was the Roman Catholics of a couple hundred years before that that had to mandate everybody has to come to communion at least once a year. Yep. Why did they have to mandate it? Because they were afraid of it because of the false doctrine of transubstantiation. <laughs> they were afraid that somehow they're going to, you know, have a problem with that. So, so, in you know the 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 reformers come along and they're like, hey, you guys are doing wrong. You know, transubstantiation is wrong, and they were right about that. I think. Mm-hmm. And then they, but then instead of saying, let's get it right, they ended up perpetuating a, a wrong practice of it, even though their theology of it, I thought, I think is largely right. I think Calvin's theology is largely right, but his, he, you know, he never got the practice to incarnate the view. Right. Like if your view is this typical Calvinistic view, which apparently Lutherans are incapable of understanding this. Lutherans <laughs> hear that for whatever reason, every Lutheran I've talked to is like, "Oh, that doesn't mean anything. It's just symbolic." Like, no, that is not the uh, Calvinistic yeah. view. But uh, as like I said, apparently Lutherans can't understand this. So if there are any Lutherans out here, I hope you can understand what I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is that Christ is present. There is spiritual presence, but it is not through His human nature. It's because Christ is divine that he is present with us in the bread and in the wine. Um, and that spiritual presence, if you believe that, when would you want to have that happen? Every time yeah. you worship. 
Yeah. Not every quarter, <laughs> not yeah. every month. Once a year. You would want it every time you worship. Mm-hmm. So the practice of incarnating that never really took hold in Calvinistic churches, despite what I'd say is the plain meaning of believing that Christ's present with us in the breaking of the bread. Well, I mean, of course, you should be doing it weekly, uh, but, you know, that never happened. So the reformers missed, and then some of the other reformers really got it quite wrong, like Zwingli, I think, got yeah. it quite wrong um, and all that. So, uh, you know, we when you, someone says that's too Catholic, well, yeah, but let's look at the content. Is the content of confession of sin Catholic? No. Is the distinctive practice of the confessional booth Roman Catholic? Well, yes, that mm-hmm. developed in mm-hmm. the and, and the reformers rejected that, and I think for good reason. But the co- concept of cor- corporate confession is biblical and warranted. Right. Um, is the concept of weekly communion Catholic? No, you know, and so forth. Like we go through all those elements. What mm-hmm. you're going to find is that it's all all the content is fine of covenant or new worship. Now the style. So it's a content style. Um, don't reject the Trinity because it's Roman Catholic. <laughs> you know, don't. Okay. Also style. Well, style varies. If you, you know, if you look at style in the sense of very formal stuff, everything's formal, everything's planned out, everything's written out, everything's prescribed. Well, that's, that's not necessarily even Roman Catholic. That was true of, of Calvin's worship. That was true of, you know, a lot of, I mean, the, Actually, I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so we get a lot of Amish people. Do you know yeah. that when I, I, we have a number of former Amish in our church that came from the Amish to our church, which is a huge Grand That's Canyon awesome. of, a, of a gulf <laughs> to cross. <laughs> um, I remember one of them, when I first met him, he was one of the first guys that became a member of our church from the Amish. And I got together with him for lunch, and I'm like, okay, well, well let's pray. You know, let's pray before lunch. And he said, oh, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable doing that. So that's one of the things that's different. It's like the, the Amish did not utilize extemporaneous prayer. All of their prayers are written in their, in their service book. So the idea, like you just get together and, and say to an Amish church, okay, why don't you pray for so-and-so? Yeah. Like that's very, they're very uncomfortable with that. Interesting. Now, I won't say all of them are, but like, he was saying, "That's not. Our, it's not our custom to do yeah. extemporaneous prayer. So if you just brought an Amish guy into your into your worship service and said, okay, just lead us in prayer,' like they <laughs> they might feel very uncomfortable with that. Where's because, the book? Right. Where's Where's the book? Yeah. Um. So so there's just like sometimes we assume. Now, by the way, just so if you don't know this, the furthest point of departure from Roman Catholicism are the Amish. I mean, they're they're as far <laughs> off of being Catholic as possible theologically and in every other yep. way. And yet that stylistic component is not different in the sense that I think right, yeah. I, I think that prescribed prayers are very, very much part of the Catholic, quote, Catholic tradition and very much part of what I call the lower C Catholic tradition that, that's there. I'd say in, the, in no way yeah. is that just the style you know, quote Roman Catholic. Now, on the other hand, you know, there are historic practices that I think should be retained that stretch back into the early centuries. And I don't see any reason to do away with them. I'll give you one example of that. So I think there's all kind of music that we should do. I think we should have 
you know, tremendous, you know, musical instrument, uh, in, instruments in worship, all that stuff. I think we should do different styles of music. We do some contemporary music. We do mm-hmm. uh, stuff out of the Reformation that doesn't even sound like traditional music. We do stuff out of the 19th century, but we also do some early church music. Uh, one of those is the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is to an old tune. Uh, it's a chant-like tune. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the way it goes at first. I was yeah. in Ukraine in 2012, and we had a group meeting with a guy's pastor, reformed pastor. It was his birthday, and he had some friends from the town that he was part of. Um, and then a whole bunch of other reformed pastors. And we all went out. It was about 20 of us. We had a dinner and everyone introduced themselves at the dinner. And this, this reformed pastor had grown up with a guy who became a Roman Catholic priest. And he brought several other Roman Catholic priests to this birthday party. And so it was a Greek, uh, right Roman Catholic priest, and then several other, mm-hmm. uh, Western right Roman Catholic priests. Um, and I will say the Greek right. Roman Catholic priest bought, brought the best vodka. So just so you know, the Greek, <laughs> Greek guy, well, he was better at that. Um, Good on him. We went, we went through the whole night and various people shared. And then at some point, all the Roman Catholic guys said, we want to share something with you. There were two Americans, there was two Americans and a, a Polish guy with us and everybody else was Ukrainian. And they said, we want to share something from our liturgy with you. And, they had been singing all kinds of like Ukrainian folk songs all night, which are really neat and really beautiful. And then cool. these, all these Roman Catholics said, we want to, we want to um, share something from a liturgy. And then they get, began. And in, in Ukrainian, they said, they sang our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thou. And I like, that yeah. is what we sing yeah. right in our service. And it was just an ancient tune. Wow. Now I don't think that we need to do everything the same across locations and, nationalities and ethnic groups and all that. Yeah. And certainly not over time, but I mean, there is something really precious about singing the mm-hmm. same, uh, tune to the Lord's prayer with your Ukrainian brethren who, yeah. you know, have been singing it for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, Ukrainian, uh, the Slavic church goes back to a thousand AD, yeah. like for, for a long time, probably a thousand years, they've been singing the same, <laughs> the same song. And, um, that is just amazing. I like, How there's cool. something I want part of that. You know, I want a little bit of mm-hmm. that. I don't, I don't insist then that they sing in Christ alone, but I, I don't mind singing in Christ alone. If you know that popular, yep. you know, yeah. praise song, like that's a good song too, but, yeah. but we can sing both of them, but to have something rooted in history, that's the same is very valuable to me. So, Style-wise, I think you can do covenant renewal worship that's according to the Bible that is warranted by Scripture, and and you wouldn't really have the feel of being in you know a Roman Catholic worship service. That's On awesome. the other hand, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong uh, to to have that to have a prescribed style with higher you know music, but I mean you could easily do the same steps of worship with you know guitar in hand and all that yeah as opposed to the pipe organ you know and higher music now i i do think you know our our service is 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 higher liturgically 
I think there's some value to that. I think that, you know, again, it befits the, the context. The more informal you are, uh, the more problem. I have a friend, he just finished his MDiz, an old friend of mine, and he he was he lived in the, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, for oh, yeah. a number of years. And there was only one church he could go to in that context. It was a broad evangelical church, and he's really interested in Reformed teaching so he got he got home and he's like i want to go to a presbyterian church that's really teaching reformed doctrine but and he said something like this years ago he said but i want to be able to wear my flip-flops i don't want to go (laughs) stuffy well what he found was that in the place he was at he he couldn't really find a reformed church that was casual in their you know in their presentation so i really felt comfortable wearing their Hmm. you know shorts and flip-flops and that were serious about reform doctrine. And uh, I'm like, well, surprise, surprise, you're probably not going to find that, you know, because in a certain sense, like if you get together and you're serious about worship and you're serious about reform teaching, you're probably going to look like an adult, you know, in that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, but he was like, no, 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 you know, and I agree, of course, you can wear your flip flops and read, read Calvin's Institutes. No problem, obviously. Yeah. But but there is a sense in which cult the culture of a congregation, uh, the the less formal the that it is, the less serious it's mm-hmm. going to be. And yeah. and again, that's not. There's no. I wish that there were plenty of examples to the contrary of that, but I don't know of any. Yeah, it <laughs> you know, there goes may that be way, some. Typically, yeah, there may be some. And so it is with worship. It's like the more casual you are about worship, the more you tend to say. By the way, we're just getting together. Let's be comfortable. Let nobody worry about it. You know, yeah. we're not meeting with God or doing anything awesome. And you know, it's not yeah. the case that we're appearing before a, a holy and righteous God. And you know, <laughs> you know, the vibe of this is not serious easily gets through mm-hmm. in the yeah. lack of formality. Yeah, uh, that's quite popular uh, you know. too. You go to many churches websites. That's like pasted right on the front is welcoming comfortable come as you are are. well right and and i would want to say that too i want to say hey you know you know i do want people to you know come however you are you Mm -hmm. know and i know that we actually have had a a number of cases over the years of people that show up with with shorts and flip-flops on and like i i would never judge somebody and say don't come or don't come to worship dress like this not at all i would think that but if the culture Right. is pervaded by the fact that you're you're really not serious when you come to worship and you're you're and, and a lot a lot of people they'll be like hey i'm sorry i'm wearing flip-flops today we're going to the beach right after worship it's like i don't care that's fine with me but <laughs> if the whole church is really at the beach when they come to worship then right. you're probably going to have a different feel for worship and it's going to yeah. be uncomfortable and it's like are you coming and and serious in mind now again you're flip-flops don't matter i love i've got my birkenstocks i love them and and it, and 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 you know maybe i'll wear them to worship one day but and i would wear them to worship if i weren't preaching but you know but uh but like you know the, the, it's again it's it's like if you don't have a style that is serious then i think you're going to have problem incarnating what what worship is biblically if you now that can vary a lot and i don't mean to say the way we do it is the only style not at all i think mm-hmm. there's a whole big range for style music style and everything else you know i'm good with a whole 
with quite the range on that. But I do think some level of serious intention has to attend worship. And that often takes right. the form of people, you know, coming like they would if they were going to, a, you know, a serious meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were going to, if, if somebody important in your location, uh, the mayor or whatever, ask you to come and have a you know, meeting at City Hall, you probably would, you know, take care to, to wear something different. Mm-hmm. Not wear football. Um, well, you, you probably <laughs> wouldn't. And I mean, again, the mayor might say, oh, you know, you should just come as you are. But you probably would, you know, your, your intention does sometimes get reflected in what you in what you look like. And again, I am the last person in the world to say you have to wear a coat and tie to, to worship. I don't think yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But but I think that there's something about the serious intention of worship that's going to affect the style. And the style is what we're talking about when we say, you know, this, this seems Roman Catholic. Well, you know, first of all, if you were concerned about the style, then, you know, again, the problem is if you've got, if you have a more relaxed style, great. If you are doing the steps of biblical worship, great. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy for that. Well, on the other hand, don't judge people because they're doing it in a traditional, more historic way. Those things, you can accomplish the same in both cases. Like I said, if you can recognize the value of coming before God as something that the Bible lets us know, that's what you're doing. You're, you're appearing before God, and it is there is a seriousness to it. That's the key thing. The other thing, I, if I could persuade evangelicals of this, that knowing the words is actually helpful to the intention of the heart. Knowing yeah, the words definitely. is helpful to the intention of the heart. If I say, okay, come on. Hey, brother, let's sing a song together. Here we go on the podcast. Let's all three sing. Here we go. Sing with me. Go. Lord, pray. Come on, sing with me. Praise <laughs> you. Come on. Lord, the, Jesus. Yeah, you know, like, okay, you don't know the words, so you can't participate because you don't know the words, right. even if you wanted to. Uh, what if I said, let's sing this song and you know it? Well, then you can participate and you can participate more intentionally if you know the words. Yeah. So definitely. the same thing is true with prayer. So oh, this is this worship is Roman Catholic. It's got written prayers. Well, the Bible gives us written prayers, like in the Psalms. Exactly. Um, you know, these things can help us. So the re- the reaction and to the effect that the only thing spiritual is extemporaneous. I've been around the block enough to know that's just not true. Right. People people that 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 are good on their feet that that are extemporaneous they can be as as unspiritual you know as ever mm-hmm. but be very good extemporaneously and it not at all mean anything spiritual i mean yeah. in other words you can fake it your yep. the style does not mean you can't fake it you can fake it in an extemporaneous way you can fake it in a formal way you can fake it in a semi-formal way. You can fake it in every way possible. The heart is an idol maker, is an idol factory, says John Calvin. Yeah, exactly. Right? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I mean, so you can't judge on the appearance of does it look authentic or not. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, and, and you know, the whole idea, like, for, I don't know, it was about 10 years ago. 
everyone was talking about authentic worship, and it's still talking about authentic, authentic, yeah. authentic. Well, okay, I we all want authentic worship, but you cannot see that from the outside. That's the problem. You can't determine it from the outside. Yeah, and I you, would, you know, and I would just think, well, how much more authentic can you get than scripture? If you're trying to do worship, you know, in its truest fashion, then then ground it in scripture and use the Psalms for your prayers and use, you know, these patterns. I mean, I I would not say your spontaneous prayers are something as more authentic than something that was inspired. Yeah, exactly. So it has to be regulated by the Bible. Yeah. Uh, what when I was in in seminary, my last year of seminary. Um, I was a worship leader at a vineyard church, a proto vineyard. Oh, it wasn't yep. actually in the vineyard, but it was basically that's where it was. We mm-hmm. were studying John Wimber and power evangelism. Oh yeah. And and I was struggling with the whole, you know, does God is God telling us to do miracles and are you know, are we supposed to be sort of moving in signs and wanting miracles all the time? And I didn't see much evidence of that, but I was struggling with it and I was in a church where that was the dominant view, but I was the worship leader and, and I had a little team of musicians and we were, we were playing and you can imagine this is like late eighties or well, probably early nineties, fantastic, 1989. And you can imagine the worship songs that were at that, in that vintage, it was like, you know, uh, the, you know, p- pretty common songs that probably aren't done much more. And they're, they're fine. They're, they were biblically sound, you know, songs, but one Sunday, uh, we were leading worship, and I was leading worship, and and we were singing the song "Our God Reigns." So if you've heard that, like 1970 praise song, and there's a section in it where it says, "Out from the tomb He came with grace and majesty." Mm-hmm. And as I was leading this this uh, um, this song, and and you know we were worshiping, as, as we got to that point in the song, spontaneously everyone stood up in the congregation and it was like a real movement like everybody was together yeah and we all stood up and people began to clap and it was just like a an overwhelming shared experience of praise you know just like like the lord was moving in us so that we all sort of recognized and it was an overwhelming response from the congregation at this one spot without it was not planned and uh, i've never never had it never happened again just this one time well, I remember, you know, after the service, the two kind of spiritual leaders that were older, older men, they came up to me and they're like, well, that you really, you really caught the spirit in that service. And I'm like, well, you know, praise the Lord, you know, uh, and, and then, and then one of the guys who kind of had the pastor role, he said, now let's make sure we do that next week too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, now if you, now how can you, now, they essentially put pressure on me, like, well, you yeah. need to make that happen every week. And, and I'm like, okay, the, you know, like, you, okay, that's the point, right? You can't make, if you make it, if you manufacture it, it's not real. And mm-hmm. the whole point is it's a spirit. It's like, you know, okay, well, let's bottle up that spirit and, yeah. uh, you know, let's give it, give it, you know, prescribe it out every week. That's great. Well, Dr. Strawbridge, I don't want to continue to, Take your time, but we truly appreciate you coming on the show. This has been awesome. Yeah, this has been wonderful. I mean, I'm going to re-listen to this and uh, really benefit from this. You know, the the worship service is is a huge part of a Christian life, and I think it's really important to go back to the Scriptures and look at the whole of Scripture for 
uh, what we need to be doing and and then to also understand nuance, understand church history, and you've done that and, and really been helpful. So thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening again. Come back next week for another episode. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time, get woke. Yeah. Let's start with the microphone check. One, two, first. Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church. The kind of things that few search. They say that the truth hurts. Well, this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth. First things first, can't neglect this at the start. I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart from original sin, the effects of the fall. The sin of our first parents brought death to us all. Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us. In him were all rebels and dead. Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a Dark state, Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames. Left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames. Cause we're powerless to change. If you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily. As you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3.